from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. It's no surprise net farm income is expected to fall this year, but not all economists agree on how much. We, we certainly saw the results in the January numbers suggesting a, a downturn, probably the largest downturn since we've started the survey. Trade relations hit rough waters. You're going to see increased friction between the United States uh, and uh, uh, China, much like you're seeing right now between China and the EU. We'll tell you why. The push to plant is around the corner, so is the bug to plant. No matter what we do with the equipment we have, um, you know, the, the day that first neighbor goes, you know, the whole countryside breaks loose. So our, our conditions correct to get moving in those situations. Why patience may be a key ingredient to flip your soil. And this isn't your typical farm dog, how this beloved canine helped one farmer heal and provided hope. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the testing grounds meet the proving grounds. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the headlines from extreme cold and heavy snow to now a surge in temperatures. The weather in many parts of the country is undergoing a dramatic shift and it looks like the trend could last for the foreseeable future. Take a look at this map showing the maximum high temperatures as we head into the end of January. Parts of Montana, those could see temperatures well above 50 degrees. That's a big change from what we saw earlier this month when temperatures dropped as low as negative 50 across the northern high plains. That means that from mid-January to the end of January, we're looking at a 100 degree plus temperature swing for parts of the northern high plains. It won't be quite as dramatic for the rest of the country, but it will be a big turnaround that could lead to some rapid melting of snow and some very muddy conditions in areas that were affected by those multiple snowstorms. In the south, the concern is for heavy rains, with some areas seeing eight inches plus all the way from eastern Texas to the central and southern Appalachians. And while that may be good news for drought impacted areas, Rebbe says it could lead to flash flooding. The stock price of ag giant Archer Daniels Midland slid Monday following the company's decision to put its chief financial officer on administrative leave. ADM making the statement on Sunday, CFO Vikram Luther now on leave amid a probe into accounting practices following a request by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Reuters reporting there are questions with respect to ADM's nutrition business, which supplies ingredients including plant-based proteins, natural flavors, as well as supplements and other things. ADM's stock price then fell Monday to its lowest level in several years. It also appointed an interim CFO and says it is cooperating with the SEC. U.S. oil refiners are calling on the EPA to reform the Renewable Fuel Credit Program. Reuters reporting the refiners want the EPA to restrict who can participate. They claim the current trading environment allows for market manipulation and increases fuel costs. Two refiners that are subsidiaries of CVR Energy saying in a petition that an adjustment to the program could reduce the price of renewable fuel credits. The refiners argue the EPA allows others to participate in the REN program, including fuel retailers, which is causing REN prices to climb and harming small oil refiners. The EPA has so far not commented, but analysts that we talked to say it's basically an effort to take the speculators out of the market. 
Well, we're all familiar with those USDA grades for beef at the grocery store. Now the agency is starting a new pilot program that would expand that grading. It's called the Remote Grading Pilot for beef, and the idea is to attract more small and independent processors to the program. USDA's Ag Marketing Service says it allows remote graders to use photos taken at the plant, along with videos, to issue grades for beef cuts and carcasses. It says it will help cut costs and location barriers to participate in the voluntary grading services. It's going to be available to any processing facility that does not currently have a full or part-time grading system in place. And we're only going to charge the producer for the time spent reviewing the pictures and making the determination. Vilsack says on average, a beef carcass that grades as USDA Prime is valued at hundreds of dollars more than an ungraded carcass. And can pigs help people live healthier lives? A new study is showing promise in people with liver failure. Surgeons are recently doing something unusual. They externally attached a pig liver to a brain-dead human body. They watched it successfully filter blood, which is a key step toward eventually trying the technique on living patients with liver failure. Doctors at the University of Pennsylvania conducting the surgery, they say externally attaching the pig liver creates a bridge to support failing livers by doing the organ's blood cleansing work externally, similar to dialysis for failing kidneys. Animal to human transplants often fail because people's immune systems reject the organ. Scientists are now working with pigs whose organs have been genetically modified to be more human-like. You can read more about this at porkbusiness.com. We talked about it earlier, a major temperature swing setting in across the U.S. We'll have a check of your weather coming up next. Join us in Orlando at the 2024 NCBA Cattle Convention. Don't miss U.S. Farm Report host Tyne Morgan's live taping with industry experts February 1st at noon. Be part of the live audience at the Chuck Wagon Cafe number one. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. Wrap round or square bales with the LW1100 bale wrapper. Plus, it qualifies for special 3.9% financing through January 31st. Contact your H&S dealer right away for more info. Matt Engelbrecht joining us now with weather. Matt, our viewers have seen it all in the past two weeks. Snow, ice, rain, even stubborn fog. And now a major warm up. We'll start off looking at the precipitation outlook. We actually go back to a drier pattern as we enter February for the northeast. Now that's coming on the heels of a system that came through this past weekend. But you start to see uh, the two systems take shape. Ridge of high pressure developing uh, nearly uh, half of the United States. So from the plains uh, to the east coast and then back here towards the west, it's more of a digging trough. And we're going to bring in uh, that Pineapple Express or at least mention of a lot of rainfall in and across California and back up here into the four corner states. Again, that's through the early start of the beginning of February. I expect a ridge of high pressure to really be the dominant feature, keeping temperatures uh, above average. And here's a temperature outlook you know, through January 30th, February 3rd. Uh, if you look back in January, it's maybe a week to 10 days where we've completely flipped this. We're over here on the blue side. Now we're back into kind of a December type pattern where we're still way over here. It's not just for like one or two areas. It's the entire nation and that is looking at above average normal temperatures. As you get deeper into February, the other thing you may notice in your local area is that the climate data, the average high will start 
to climb. Not a lot, but enough. We've kind of uh, already gone through the middle, if not uh, the coldest on average uh, part of the year in January. As we come back up, those average highs and lows will start to increase. As for that jet stream, so again, a big pattern Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We got uh, that low pressure system that's moving off to the north and to the east and see a reinforcing shot of some cooler air, some cloud cover, and maybe even some rain tries to scoot through here Tuesday into Wednesday. And then things get uh, pretty interesting. Uh, from a warmer than average standpoint. You look at the jet stream on Wednesday, you open up a textbook, and this is something that you would typically see in regards to above average high temperatures for a decent amount of time, three, four, or five days. So this is a jet stream coming up on Wednesday with this ridge extending all the way back up here to the north. Now it'll try to break down with a significant trough digging back out here towards the west. And what we start to see is a typical pattern with a trough and low pressure system ridge and back to a trough. Everything is going to get kind of jammed up and depending on where these features uh, ultimately land, that is going to keep the same kind of weather over your location for an extended period of time. So again, this is a jet stream on Friday. Got warmer than average conditions, a kind of cooler, messier weather towards the east and then cooler, messier weather back towards the west. There's a look at the jet stream coming up through your week. Thanks, Matt. Well, after a run up, commodity prices cooled off. Thursday, Matt Bennett and Krista Swanson join us next to tell us why. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Matt Bennett of agmarket.net and new to the program this weekend, Krista Swanson, lead economist with National Corn Growers Association. We have a lot to cover this weekend, but Matt, as you look at some of the bullish outside markets having an impact uh, on corn and soybean prices earlier this week, Thursday, we retreated a little bit. So what is moving the markets right now? You know, I think there's been some talk about, for instance, South American weather. Uh, They're talking about a little bit warmer weather, of course, in Argentina. And then maybe Brazil was going to be wetter for harvest. But, you know, I think that that's kind of a, a developing situation where one day it's one way, one day it's another. So, you know, earlier in the week, of course, corn uh, closed higher Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And in totality, I think we had about seven cents of a rally, seven and a half. So it wasn't a huge rally, whereas for, uh, for, for beans, you know, you had a couple of double digit type gains. But uh, bottom line is on Thursday, beans got beat up. And I think a lot of that has to do again with maybe some of those heat forecasts and uh, uh, maybe some of the worst of the worst type forecasts for Argentina. Maybe they changed just a little bit. I was uh, with Eric Snodgrass earlier in the day and, and he told me, you know, that essentially those forecasts didn't look as ominous what they did previously. Well, also keeping an eye, eye on that Safrina corn crop in South America, specifically in Brazil, Krista. I mean, are we planting that crop right now? You know, how long is that window and how long could that be a factor in the markets? De- definitely here at the beginning of the the planting season for the Safrina corn crop. And I think that's why, I mean, as Matt was just saying, we, we see these days where we have some ups and downs in the market. But for corn in particular, really have been trading sideways for months now. And, you know, I think that all eyes are on what actually happens with that Safrina corn crop, um, whether weather dictates how many acres get planted. I think there's also some, you know, we look at um, where prices are right now and we you know, do those farmers have an economic incentive right now to even plant corn as a second crop. Um, I know some of some of those farmers last year were selling that second crop at a loss. And so. You know, if, if you're that farmer making that decision, you've got a lot, a lot to weigh. You're you're potentially getting it planted later than normal. And then, you know, that that the price isn't there to really drive um, those additional acres. So 
I think we're we're keeping an eye on what's happening down there uh, and and what happens with those acres. That's on the supply side. Looking at the demand side, Matt, we saw the weekly soybean sales coming in during the, the week that ended January 18th. It missed the low end of pre-report estimates. We were down 28% from the previous week. So is this a longer term trend or, you know, are we seeing China continue to go to Brazil? Is it something to be concerned about? When you look at FOB values for U.S. Gulf beans, we're out of the market right now versus Brazil and Argentina, first of all. Second of all, it's that time of year, you know, as you get uh, into harvest, as Chris has said, uh, six to eight percent, I believe, as far as uh, harvest goes. Uh, with that being the case, you're getting harvest going. Beans are going to move towards port. You're going to have beans available and ready for shipment. And so bottom line, this time of year is not prime time for U.S. soybean uh, uh, shipments. Sales pretty much step to a crawl and there's really not much going on. And so you add to that uh, that the dollar's been on a bit of an uptrend here over the last few weeks. And the uh, bottom line is we're out of the market. So 30 to $40 a ton, depending on whether you're talking Brazil or Argentina. And, of course, right now Brazil's going to have a few more beans available for export. Krista, how's the pace for corn exports right now? Yeah, so exports in, in this marketing year so far are, you know, on target with a right at about the five-year average of, of the previous five years, not including last year, which which was uh, trailing behind. And kind of like Matt's talking about the um, FOB price, at the Gulf compared to, to Brazil's price. Um, you know, we corn had that challenge really through a lot of, of last year and, uh, where, where our price was just more expensive and they had, uh, you know, they have the two harvests a year. And so that was, that was a big challenge for us last summer. Fortunately, um, the corn price has come closer to, to a narrow range here in recent months. And we've really seen that export pace pick up in this marketing year, uh, to a more comfortable level. And, um, if you look at where we are so far and, and where USDA has us pegged in the year at about 2.1 billion bushels, uh, we, we, if we can keep up this pace of exports, um, that's a number that I think we can hit. And so, you know, I would say that positivity on, on the corn export side, the downside is when you look at where we're at compared to Brazil's exports in this market year, um, because they are, you know, ahead of us. Um, even though uh, the U.S. exports have been have been strong, especially relative to last year. All right. Well, some exciting news on the demand front. We saw the world's first ethanol, the sustainable aviation fuel production facility open up this week. We will talk about that coming up right after the break. Welcome back. Well, as I mentioned before the break, LanzaJet inaugurated the world's first ethanol, the sustainable aviation fuel production facility. That happened in Georgia this week. Krista, some exciting news there finally with sustainable aviation fuel. But are there challenges that you see for us to really fully enter this SAF market? Yeah, from the core perspective, I mean, as we think about these ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel facilities coming online, it's it's really an incredible opportunity. Um, but uh, to qualify for some of the, the tax incentives that were part of the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a requirement of a 50% reduction in carbon intensity score um, from, from standard jet fuel that is going to limit um, corn's ability to, to be a part of this in the short term. Uh, you know, they're, uh, just the, the, the carbon intensity score right now is higher. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's unfortunate because we think about the administration's um, SAF Grand Challenge roadmap that, you know, has, has um, larger goals out to 2050, but we look at one of the short-term goals, it's to have 3 billion gallons of, 
uh, domestic SAF by 2030. And if we do some math on on the conversion of, of corn into ethanol and ethanol into SAF, um, you know, that could be using, you know, there's that would take about 1.6 billion bushels of corn to meet that 3 billion gallon goal. And, you know, looking at ending stocks this year, we have 2.2 billion bushels estimated carryover. And so, you know, corn has the ability right now to be to be beating that uh, 2030 requirement uh, alone just with with our carryover. So, I mean, we we have the product. It's it's grown here by by corn farmers in the United States. Um, it just kind of underscores the importance of policy that allows for use of corn ethanol and, and provides a time frame for corn ethanol to work to meet those um, important target requirements. Yeah, I'm at at the same time we're watching renewable diesel front. Uh, for soybeans and how that could change the soybean demand picture here domestically. But as you look right now, the latest Ag Economist Monthly Monitor, we asked economists what pencils better right now for 2024, corn or soybeans. The majority of economists said soybeans. As you're talking to producers right now, do you think we're going to see an acreage shift this year, Matt? Yeah, you, know, you got to start with where we were at last year. So 11 million acres between corn and beans. Uh, you've got to assume that a lot of folks on a typical 50-50 rotation are going to end up uh, bringing a fair amount of beans to the table. But at the same time, fall of 23 was a fantastic fall. Weather was good. Uh, you could get all the tillage done you ever wanted to do, fertilizer, if you will. And so I think given the economics during harvest, when people were making a lot of these decisions, corn actually looked better uh, for a lot of people. Right now, do beans look better? Yes, they do. Uh, there's several different publications that suggest that and running the math, I would agree with that particular analysis. But uh, bottom line is a lot of these acres are already quantified. So uh, whenever I look at that 11 million acre difference, <clears throat> I've got to think that uh, you're looking at something uh, more along the lines, maybe four or five. Last year, uh, over 178 combined acres, maybe uh, losing a little bit of wheat acres this year. Uh, but are we going to get much over 178? I think that remains to be seen if we do. I'm still probably around 91 or 92 as far as corn's concerned, uh, maybe beating beans by, oh, I don't know, maybe 4 million acres. And so the reason for that, again, is that I think so many of those acres are already quantified due to the nature of last harvest. But I do think swing acres go to beans. I just don't think there's going to be as many swing acres this year as what we typically see. All right, Matt, Krista, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We really appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we're gonna go visit Lee Miller in Adrian, North Dakota to learn about his John Deere D that started it all. My collecting started 50 years ago when I purchased this 1949 D John Deere. My dad farmed with one just like it when I was growing up, so I saw one on an auction sale and I decided I had to have it. Everything heavy you use the D for because it had the most power. It was electric start. A lot of tractors back in the 40s weren't necessarily electric start, and they had lights. So yeah, it was a pretty well-equipped tractor. As it turned out, this is sort of a rare D. It's a rice model, and people used to look at the fenders and say somebody cut them off, but that's not the case. Uh, John Deere cut them that way because they had oversized rice tires on the rear. Well, they're deep lug. People down in the rice country, they uh, need it for traction. 
I did a little research on it, and this tractor actually was shipped to Jamestown, North Dakota, and we all know that we don't grow any rice here. Well, I still plow with it every year. We have an old-time plowing bee every fall. I think this fall we plowed uh, 100 acres. All the neighbors come over that have old tractors and plows, and we just have a fun day. Thanks, Greg. Well, it's no surprise net farm income is expected to fall in 2024, but not all economists agree on how much. We'll tell you why next. You're watching U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Each month, Farm Journal teams up with Mizzou to get a gauge of the ag economy through the lens of ag economists. It provides a pulse of trends and uncovers things to watch. And January's Ag Economist's monthly monitor survey produced some surprises. That's this weekend's Farm Journal report. Ag Economist's views on the ag economy took a dive in the first Ag Economist's monthly monitor of 2024. We certainly saw the results in the January numbers suggesting a, a downturn, probably the largest downturn since we've started the survey. University of Missouri Ag Economist Scott Brown helps author the monthly monitor. And he says from December to the latest survey in January, projections for corn prices fell 25 cents per bushel. Just one sign that economists are growing more pessimistic at the start of the year. I don't want to make a trend out of just one survey, but if we continue down the path that we started with the January estimates, perhaps uh, we're telling 2024 to be a less positive story than we would have just a few months ago. The average estimate for net farm income also took a turn, falling to $135 billion for 2024. You know, let's just remember that back in 2020, we would have talked about net farm income at about $95 billion. So this is still uh, much higher than where we would have been in that kind of 2016 through 2020 period. However, not all ag economists are forecasting net farm income to fall that far. What has surprised me, I think, is the nature of the pessimism amongst people uh, relative to expectations. To me, I think we will be down, but maybe not near as low as what you know current expectations are suggesting in that 120 to 130 billion dollar range. Ben Brown is an assistant extension economist at Mizzou and is one of the nearly 70 economists surveyed each month. We're going to see lower revenues on the crop side, but we're going to see you know year record profit um, potentially on the on the cattle side. We're going to see a recovery in pork and poultry profitability as well, at least in my expectations over the next couple of years. Economists were then asked to rank each commodity by financial strength, 10 being the strongest, one being the weakest. Scott Brown says it's no surprise cattle continues to top that list. And when you look at where we're at on prices, yes, we've lost in the last couple of months a, a a little bit of cattle price strength, but I think it's starting to turn back around and just how tight we are on the supply side. Soybeans rank second, followed by sorghum, corn, and wheat. But ag economist Bill Lapp says declining commodity prices for crops continues to be the headline. I think the January 12 reports uh, gave us maybe some cold truth that we weren't ready for. He says January's USDA reports confirmed resilient corn and soybean yields with a record national corn yield despite challenging weather last year. And that led to increases in ending stocks, although modest, um, it, it, it did put a, a damper on the market going into the um, 
uh, remainder of the winter. And he says as USDA prepares for its Ag Outlook Forum next month, USDA will provide the first snapshot of supply and demand projections for 2024 through 2025. And he thinks the theme of growing stocks will continue. When you pencil it all out, it looks like even with a decrease in corn acreage, we're going to have a, another year of building stocks in corn. Um, we expect at least some increase in soybean um, acreage, and that will lead to some building of soybean stocks as well. And then the last time we saw this was the 2012 through 2015 period where we where we push prices sharply lower. As farmers weigh acreage decisions, ag economists were asked which commodity pencils better in 2024, corn or soybeans. Just under 60% said soybeans, while a little over 40% answered corn. Here in Missouri on our numbers, uh, we certainly are suggesting both crops, you know, fall in terms of profitability, corn even moving into the negative territory over total costs, at least that's our case study here in, in Missouri. Um, but soybeans still getting the edge over corn. Ben Brown says there are a couple reasons for that. One is the cost structure for growing soybeans relative to corn. The other is for the expectation for better weather to help fuel better soybean yields. With average production, with the prices that we're forecasting and the costs that I have penciled in for both corn and soybeans, uh, soybeans returns about a 40 to $50 per acre you know, net return over corn. The January survey also asked economists that Brazil can reign as the top exporter of soybeans in the world this year. More than 90% of ag economists surveyed think Brazil will remain in the top spot. They're increasing their acreage. Um, there's a rebound in there. Um, even with poor weather, there's going to be a, um, a re recovery in, in their production. When asked the same question for corn, economists' views were more mixed, with just over 40% of respondents answering yes. I think weather's playing into that uncertainty, maybe more on the corn side than we're seeing on the soybean side right now. As you saw, economists are bullish beef prices, but one thing Bill Lapp is watching is the impact that rising wholesale beef and retail beef prices will have on demand. And he thinks if history tells us anything, consumers won't eat less protein, instead switch over to other proteins like chicken, which could be bullish for poultry demand. Well, we'll talk about all of that much more next weekend. We're on the road for the annual cattle convention in Orlando, Florida. Join us for our live taping happening at 12 p.m. on Thursday, February 1st in the Chuck Wagon Cafe. We're looking forward to our first ever U.S. Farm Report taping at cattle convention. Well, up next, shipping costs surged 40% in a week, sparking new supply chain concerns. Ag Around the World is next. Join us in Orlando at the 2024 NCBA Cattle Convention. Don't miss U.S. Farm Report host Tyne Morgan's live taping with industry experts February 1st at noon. Be part of the live audience at the Chuck Wagon Cafe number one. Six years ago this month was the start of the trade war between the U.S. and China. And now there are growing concerns about a possible trade war between China and the EU. According to the South China Morning Post, European officials are warning of a trade war. It's due to frustrations in Brussels over China unwilling to budge on major issues, including at last month's EU-China summit in Beijing. One of those issues is a growing bilateral trade deficit. And one Chinese premier announcing the reopening of Chinese market to Irish beef products just last week, granting visa-free access. Irish beef was suspended after an atypical case of BSE was found in the country last year. 
China sell her dropped more than 5% in 2023. China sell her declined 2.5 million head or 5.7% to 41 million head at the end of 2023, according to an Ag Ministry official. Farmers reduced their breeding herds during the final quarter of last year to cut losses amid poor margins and an oversupply of hogs. Meanwhile, now China's concerned about its own food security. That's why it's strengthening ties with Brazil. Those concerns have been mounting due to several challenges, including the trade war with the U.S. and the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as Russia invading Ukraine. Urbanization in China has caused a change in diets. They're opting for more meat, dairy and processed foods, and that's pressuring available farmland. Reports say that less than 12 percent of China's land is suitable for ag production. That compares to 17 percent in the U.S. But keep in mind, China's population is more than four times that of the U.S. And that may explain Brazil's growing market share in exports to China. New numbers show China's soybean imports from Brazil jumped 29 percent in 2023, while imports of U.S. soybeans fell 13 percent. Now, those numbers are compared to 2022. And with the 29 percent rise in imports from Brazil, Brazil's market share jumped to 70 percent in China, while the U.S. shrunk to 29 percent. And just when you think the supply chain is finally getting back to normal, global shipping rates continue to surge, doubling in just one month. This chart says it all. Check out how much rates have soared over the past month. The culprit continues to be ongoing attacks by Houthi rebels on cargo ships in the Red Sea, targeting vessels traveling through the Suez Canal. It's causing new supply chain challenges in Europe and the U.S. Well, officials in Europe and Asia are already concerned about the outcome of the presidential election here in the U.S. this year. Plus, why the Farm Bill isn't a bipartisan issue anymore. That's in Chip's Corner next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, Chip's Corner this week, Jim Wiesmeyer joining us. Chip is taking some time off. Jim Wiesmeyer, a frequent visitor on AgriTalk, kind enough to step in. Jim, reading your newsletter this week, you're talking about a growing likelihood of a trade war between the EU and China. Is a trade war between the U.S. and China still on the table? Oh, yes, especially uh, after the presidential election, no matter who wins that, you're going to see increased friction between the United States uh, and uh, uh, China, much like you're seeing right now between China and the EU, because both uh, both of those areas of the world, time are flexing their muscles. So, yeah, the, the trend is not our friend relative to improved relations between either the EU and the U.S. with China. Well, as we saw Trump's lead in the Iowa caucus, uh, you know, in the majority of the vote that he received there, we know his stance on trade policy. So what are farmers saying right now on why they're throwing their support behind Trump? Well, I've given several speeches lately throughout our great country, uh, and I've asked farmers that. And they say, well, you know, if if he if he follows through with his uh, suggestion, perhaps the first week, if he were to become president again, that he would invoke uh, what he calls a universal tariff, an across-the-board tariff on all exporters to the United States, I including ones, I guess, that we have trade agreements with, like Japan, uh, of at least 10% tariffs. Now, that's going to invoke retaliation on the part of, of, our, of our trade uh, allies, 
So I asked farmers, aren't you upset about this? Well, they almost seemed resigned, but they fervently believed that just like the first time we had a U.S.-China trade war, you recall, uh, Trump tapped the Commodity Credit Corporation for billions of dollars, I think $27 billion total, as it worked out to be. And so farmers think that rather than payments through the marketplace, or whatever, uh, they'll just get it through income transfers via the uh, CCC. That's been an interesting development when I've uh, gone on the road, Tide. Well, speaking of CCC, just last week we heard Secretary Vilsack say if we're going to see an increase in reference price, maybe to get that funding, um, Congress should look at tapping into the CCC. It just seems like Farm Bill, I mean, it's whiplash right now. Are we going to see one this year or are we going to not? But no matter what, Jim, it seems like it is getting even more partisan. Oh, it's the the formerly bipartisan farm bill has definitely turned partisan, both in the Senate and the House. You saw Stabenow recently say that she wants to propose giving farmers a hard choice uh, between choosing either a souped up crop insurance program. She didn't detail how she would soup it up or picking an ARC or a PLC type program. Well, the Congressional Budget Office is going to score that as savings because they know the vast majority of farmers and ranchers would choose crop insurance for, for the right reasons. It's a better risk management tool. So Stabenow wants, I guess, that money for other purposes. But no no Republican in the Senate is going to, or very few, would go along with that. So you're going to have a Republican farm bill and a Democratic farm bill. Neither will go nowhere. Well, Jim, thanks for your insight. You can hear Jim every Friday on AgriTalk AM for the free-for-all. But coming up, he's going to be at our top producer summit. That's happening February 5th through the 7th in Kansas City, Missouri. So make sure to register now for top producer summit. You can hear Jim Leesmeyer as well as a host of other speakers. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. So we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Flip Your Soil on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST. From the ground up, see this Smart Nutrition Map Plus MST sculpture come to life. Witness the power of your soil this season. Well, USDA and economists are projecting lower net farm income in 2024, in part due to lower grain prices. Farmers are always shooting for higher yields, but it will be even more important this year for farmers to flip their soil to reach those goals. Michelle Rook joins us this weekend and has some timely tips heading into the planting season. The formula for achieving higher yields is different for every grower, depending on their unique climate, soil type, and fertility, plus the pest pressure in their area. But there are some universal agronomic variables that can help them improve their success in 2024. With lower grain prices and tighter profit margins in 2024, every bushel is going to count. Steve O'Neill is an agronomist and CEO of Corn Capital Innovations. He works with growers across the Corn Belt and says the road to yield success starts with planting high-quality corn and soybean seed. Watching warm germs, cold germs, saturated cold germs, and knowing you know if it's going to be a delayed wet spring and a cool spring, how we can use that information to make really good decisions versus you know make a decision 
maybe plant too early and then pay those consequences based on the quality of that product. Another trend that's really paying off is early planting of soybeans and he recommends planting beans before corn. I think that's what's driving bean yields to the direction they are. Early planting on beans is a difference maker. The ability of that crop to sustain itself, to set nodes early, to elongate out and create more nodes per plant. Beans, I think, is if you want to talk about top end yield driving factors in beans, early planting is the number one factor. The pendulum has also swung back on soybean seed populations. You're seeing the populations drop with the disease pressure on beans, you know, um, you know what we used to be above, above one, one and a half, you know, 1.3 units per acre on a bean pop. You're seeing things drive back down, sub 120,000 pops, some areas in the 100,000 population, depending upon the region that you're in. For corn, O'Neill says the key is to wait for optimal soil conditions at planting time to get the crop off to a good start. No matter what we do with the equipment we have, um, you know, the, the day that first neighbor goes, you know, the whole countryside breaks loose. So our, our conditions correct to get moving in those situations. So patience is key. And O'Neill recommends median corn populations and stresses the most important yield driver for corn is getting a uniform stand and quick emergence. Good heavy soil you're seeing in that 33 to 35, 36,000 range. Um, not necessarily pushing higher, but pushing more consistent on the corn. How do I get that? each individual corn kernel out of the ground at the same time and how do I do a good job whether I'm planting 32,000 or 36,000 how do I make sure that they're all coming out of the ground within 24 hours itself they're mirror images they're doing what they need to do in the time the timeliness of when it needs to happen as well with higher fertilizer prices the last few seasons some farmers have cut rates especially in drought areas to save money anytime you drive nitrogen prices up P and K prices like we saw the previous two three years you know there was a lot of mining that occurred there was a a lot of you know sub replacement removal rates that went in uh, you know depending upon your previous fertility history you can get away with that for a little bit of time however O'Neill says top-end yields are dependent on proper nutrient levels and that's even more important with lower grain prices you just can't forget that what what you took out you need to somehow replace if you want to keep you know adding back to what you did remove from that soil bank that you have there O'Neill admits there's no silver bullet to high yield. Instead, success in yield response is cumulative. It's not a business where I want to go out and do one thing right and create a thousand percent return. It's a it's a business of doing a lot of small things right and creating one percent returns that roll into the big picture, which is hopefully separating yourself as a good as a producer and as a top end yield driver as well too. Plus, he says having a great team of professionals to advise you on your agronomic plan is invaluable. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, whether it's scouting fields or doing chores, some of you have a trusty partner along for the ride. And one caliber K9 is more than just one man's best friend. We'll introduce you to this year's Farm Dog of the Year next. In 2019, Donald Adams was injured on the farm, paralyzed from the neck down, and faced a long road to recovery. Skippy joined the Adams family and quickly became more than just a farm dog. She and Donald share a special bond, and thanks to Skippy, Donald continues to farm and grow stronger every day. This weekend, we introduce you to Skippy, American Farm Bureau's 2024 Farm Dog of the Year. Skippy is a Border Collie Catahoula Hound Australian Shepherd mix that we were fortunate enough to receive. We've had her a little over a year now. She's all of the above. She's a partner, she's a pet. She's right here with us, helping us with the cattle every day.
Donald was out with his son feeding hay and the last bale bounced the wrong way and hit him in the back of the head, broke his neck, and it bent the spinal cord. He was completely paralyzed from the neck down. I wasn't going to lay the farm. There wasn't no doubt. As long as I got a breath in me, I'm going to take care of the cattle and the farm. I was still at Shepherd's Spinal Hospital in Atlanta, and we were introduced to Farm Dog, which supplies dogs to disabled farmers to help them keep going, and thank God we did. Skippy kind of filled that role that, you know, it would take three or four people to herd 40 cows out of one pasture to another. Skippy and I can do it by ourselves. This type of injury, you've got to stay busy all the time. And that's why the cattle and Skippy helping us is responsible a lot for my recovery. Being able to keep the cows and, and something for me to live for every day, I mean, she's contributed that immensely. Getting a farm dog involved with us changed our life. Skippy was recognized this week during American Farm Bureau's annual meeting in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, from all of us at U.S. Farm Report, thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend. Remember, we're on the road to Cattle Convention in Orlando, Florida. And we hope that you join us as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.